this is Jay Koplowitz, producer of Lowdown on Low Code. Here to kick things off are your hosts, Rob Koplowitz and Ryan Dugid. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining. This is episode six, believe it or not. They said it wouldn't last. This is episode six of Lowdown um, on Low Code. This is going to be a very interesting episode for a couple of reasons. One, we're introducing a new um, team member today. And um, two, this is kind of the last foundational episode that we're going to have before we before we change things up again. So Rob Koplowitz, I'm here with uh, my co-host, Ryan Dugit. Ryan, say hi to everybody. <laughs> yeah, great to be here today, Rob, and um, trying to put things out in the background. So we've got a little bit of uh, personality going on here. For those of you who are into road biking, hopefully you can appreciate the Pinarello in the background. Um, but yeah, it's exciting. Um, you know, obviously we've got some some disclosure coming up about the, the next few episodes, Rob, that you're going to share with the team and, uh, and great to have a, a new guest on board with us with, uh, with Andy, some interesting topics to discuss today. Yeah. So, so a couple of quick, couple of quick comments here. So thing number one, you know, we've been accused of being too organic, right? Which, you know, like we don't know what we're doing guys. So bear, bear with us. I listened to, I listened to an episode of smart list yesterday, which is the, you know, the huge podcast with Jason Bateman and Will Arnett and Sean Hayes. And Will and Sean didn't show up, so Jason started the show by talking about stone fruit and his love of stone fruit. So we're not the only ones that kind of are on the organic side. I mentioned that this is um, that this is a bit of a of, of a pivot for us in in terms of where we're going, and I and I think things are going to get kind of interesting going forward. So um, we're not entirely organic. We've been very Ryan and I have been very planful in terms of in terms of what we wanted to get out. On this podcast, before we ever entertain the idea of bringing on a um, a, a vendor, so you know, we've talked about the origins of this space. We've talked about evaluative research and how to use that uh, in this space. We we had Jessica de Oliveira on to talk about hiring low code uh, developers. Um, we've talked about um, uh, um, uh, design, the importance of design with um, with Andrew Hogan. Uh, of Figma. So so these were all things that we wanted to have on the table. We talked about low code versus no code with Burley Kawasaki. Um, and now we feel like there's sort of been enough information that's gone out that we can start to to think about, you know, about how the vendors fit into this space. Um, and so, we, you know, we want to announce that, you know, we, we have a, a number of vendors lined up, but we've, we've chosen the first three that we're going to that we're going to kick off on over the course of the next um, few weeks. And we're like, really super excited about the three that we're starting with because they, they, they represent a really, really interesting cross-section of, of high-value vendors in the space. So, you know, we'll get to this, you know, more uh, obviously as we go on, but the first three are going to be um, Appian, Malcolm Ross, their senior vice president of, uh, of strategy is going to come on. Appian's really interesting. They were, you know, somebody we would have thought as a, B, as a BPM vendor who rebranded and became a low-code vendor as part of their IPO and have been, you know, very, very successful. As part of that, um, the second one is Nick Ford, who's the chief uh, growth officer at Mendix. Obviously, we've we've heard about Mendix a lot during the course of the podcast, but you know, started out as low-code and and grew um, as a low-code vendor. The third is actually um, very exciting, and I was really excited to to get this one. 
Uh, Jacob Frond, uh, the founder and CEO of Comunda, is coming on and, and represents, I think, a very a very different value proposition than most of the others in the space. Just this profound um, uh, adherence um, and and belief in in orchestration, in open source, in open standards. Um, so you know, so three different, very three very um, interesting vendors with different value propositions, but. How big is this market, right? That's sort of the question that that you know that a, a lot of folks are are interested in, and, and and that brings us to our our next guest and new team member at Analysis.Tech, Andy Bartel. So Andy was Andy was the chief economist with Forrester, which is highly relevant um, to the space here. Um, Andy also spent uh, quite a bit of time with um, with American Express. Um, Andy was also part of the Carter administration. Um, as, as an economist, he, he has a PhD from Johns Hopkins. Please welcome Andy Bartels. Thanks, Rob. You went a little overboard there with all that history. But, uh, no, anyway. what was um, Yeah, I'm ha happy to be here. Um, Rob and John were been very good friends good colleague from Forrester for many years. And uh, along with them, I've been retired, but we've also been, forgot, well, you know, retirement is fine, but it's getting a little bit boring. So I'm going to do this a little bit more interesting just to keep our feet, you know, our, our, our fingers in the pot. <laughs> so um, as Rob indicated, uh, um, one of my major roles at Forrester was to do tech market forecasting and sizing. But that also went hand in hand with my coverage of a specific software category, what we called e-purchasing software, uh, you know, procurement, sourcing, contract management. There's a whole cluster of, of um, software category there. So I, I know both how to size the market overall, but also how to size specific segments of the software market. So in terms of sizing, this was something, that, to be honest, I, I didn't feel Forrester analysts did enough. Uh, but it's a fairly straightforward exercise. So first of all, um, you know, it, it, any analyst, in my view, and this you can hold any analyst uh, to their feet to the fire if you're doing this, as part of their coverage, should be asking the vendor uh, five or six basic questions. You know, how many clients do you have today? How many clients do you have a year ago? How many employees do you have? What's your pricing model? What's your average deal size? Based upon that, I think your revenue is about X. And this applies whether it's a large vendor or a small vendor. And you play that back to them and see what they say. And then you add that up. Uh, so the way that I would approach the size of this market, back in the day at Forrester, we actually had a line in my global forecast for software that was for digital process automation. Um, and there's a number, if you want to dig up it, you can go back and find it. But obviously that past history, we have to do it fresh. So the way I'd size a market like this is as follows. You're basically talking about four types of vendors. Vendor, the first category is the easiest. These are vendors who specialize in the market and are public. The obvious one in this case is Appian. You can go to their you know, 10Ks, uh, their reports, you can get a number for that, you can build that out, and you can look at the forecast of that. Again, the forecast uh, for a vendor like Appian, if you go to, let's say, um, uh, Yahoo Finance, you'll find the, the uh, 
forecast that uh, of, of earnings that the um, equity analysts who track it do that. So that's a, the foundation part of it. The second part of it is the small vendors who are not public. Here, if you're doing, uh, happen to be talking with them directly, you know, you can ask those questions I mentioned. If you're not talking to them, you can go to LinkedIn and look up how many employees they have. And employees actually turn out to be a pretty good indicator. So you take the number of employees they have, and depending upon the maturity of the vendor, you multiply that by anywhere between 100 and 250,000. I picked 250,000 because if you take for Appian, which is public, that's our average revenues per employee. So it's a fairly mature vendor. You can kind of use that as a high end. If it's a startup vendor, you might use that. That's the way you get the second category of vendors, the specialists on that. And then, and broad, you know, you and Ryan probably know who they are. We can pull together that. That's the way we approach that. The third one is kind of tough, and it's something Ryan uh, was alluding to a little bit earlier, which is how do you size the product revenues of a large vendor like a Microsoft or a um, Pega? Uh, or other vendors who you know have a number of different lines, one of which is in this space. Here's where you know you're going back with judgment. Again, if you talk with them, you can find how so how many engineers do you have working on this product? How many clients do you have for it? You, know, you can maybe pick data up on that from different sources uh, to get that. So we'd use that as a way to come up with a rough estimate. And if we had the chance, we'd run it by them and say, okay, we're guessing you have X million. Now, that gives you... Um, a, a reference point, what it does give you is a growth rate. So you'd have to look at the overall growth rate for the revenues and see is this a product that seems to be doing better overall or better than, than the overall revenues or not as well. So you could use that if, say, a, a vendor like Microsoft is growing by, not overall, but you're looking at their software revenue specifically, you know, where this stuff might be buried. If that revenue is growing by, say, 10%, You'd say, okay, we're guessing that their product revenues here is growing by 15%. So you get that. Then the fourth category of vendors are the vendors you don't know about. You know, they may be small. They may be based out of Scotland or Ireland or New Zealand uh, that, that reached on our radar screen. But, you know, they're there. So what I always do with the sizing is I take the, the, the known revenues we have and then gross that up between 20%, 25% based upon what we think our knowledge of the market is. If we think it's pretty good, pretty complete, we might go with just 15%. We think it's pretty loose, go 25%. But that's where we get it. And again, the point here is to get both a sizing in time, but also through indicators like number of employees and how that's changed, or through indicators like publicly displayed revenues to get a growth rate. Uh, because part of a sizing is both the, the actual magnitude of it, but also part of it is the growth rate. And is this a market that's growing faster than the average software market? Is it growing about the same rate? Is it going slower? That gets to the dynamics of the market, which is I know, Rob, you want to talk about, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, is there consolidation going on? Are there big vendors coming in? And typically big vendors come in with a lower price point. And so drive down prices on that. And so that may be depressing the growth rates. So these are factors that I would use in going putting together sizing. As I said, there is a historic sizing. If you're a Forrester client, you can go back and tell old forecasts and dig it out of a line in one of the charts. 
uh, but we're going to start fresh here by doing it from the ground up and uh, you know, approaching it using its methodology, but you know, really de novo. So that's the approach. Andy, you've just given us the perfect answer to the Google the Google interview questions, right? Like, how many jelly beans fit inside the the Eiffel Tower? <laughs> Here's how to break it down. You think about yeah, if you think about those numbers that tend to come out, Andy. So, you know, when I was living on the vendor side, right, and you know, usually our go-to, you know, not picking favorites in the the analyst community, but our go-to is typically IDC. When it green Fleming <laughs> would give us that kind of data, but the numbers tend to be really hard for for people to comprehend first up because it's big billions, right? And then also it, it then becomes like if you think about you know myself in a head of product type role or across the leadership team, how much are we investing uh, in all aspects of our business? And if we're a portfolio based company, how much are we investing in particular parts of the portfolio? Like what what's your advice to to anyone trying to figure out? Okay, this category is thirty billion dollars, let's say by some year. What do I do with that? How do I decide? Like, how does that inform? Is this a good space for me? Is it not a good space for me? Is it is it growing? Is it declining? Should I be easing back? You know, my Horizon One, Horizon Two, Horizon Three investments. Maybe I need to put some bets over the horizon to try to, you know, jump out or sideways or what have you in this category. Like, how do you typically advise around that? Well, that, just, just to come back to the number you mentioned. I don't think it's close to being a thirty billion dollar market. <laughs> I think of anything, it might be in the neighborhood of an eight or nine billion model market um, indirectly on that. Um, because if you think of the overall uh, overall software market, uh, you know, it's probably around 300, 400 billion, but that includes tons of stuff, including really big expensive ERP systems like that. Anyway, um, but one of the things that I always advise uh, clients is don't go near the total addressable market. You know, you, right. you, you that, that that is always a bogus number. It is absolutely a bogus number because it's, you know, it assumes uh, that you can predict how many companies will take this. You can, and the point is, if more companies take it, the price point goes down. So typically, you know, those who do total addressable markets, you know, estimate this many companies going to take it, but they never factor in. Okay, price point's going to go down with that penetration. So avoid total addressable markets. It, it's a bogus number. But what you do want to get a sense of is not so much the absolute size of it, although that's nice, uh, but what's the trend of it? What's the dynamics of it? And it comes back to kind of what I was talking about earlier, those different categories of vendors. Now, this is a market where you see a lot of new vendors coming in. So it's, it's that created dynamics around growth. Or it's a market where it's starting to see consolidation. And then as a vendor, you have to figure out which is going to be a path in, in this consolidating market. Is it going to be, we want to be bought up by the big guys? You know, that's a good exit strategy for a lot of software vendors. Or do we want to be one of the acquirers? Or do we want to find a particular niche in the market that no one else is going after? And that's going to be our safe spot. That's going to be our, our place we're going to focus our attention so that we can continue to both um, survive, obviously, it's important, but also grow by penetrating that market, expanding from uh, logically into joining markets on that. And and one of the markets I always feel vendors underestimate is the vertical markets. <clears throat> uh, 
the reason I bring it up is that one of the pieces of research that I did at Forrest was looking at the, the, the tech profile of different industries. And they vary dramatically. You know, a bank has a very different profile of what it spends on than a retailer, which is very different from a professional service company. So you want to understand, you know, where you're, which verticals you're getting traction in and why that is. And then can we utilize that to deepen our, our, our offering for that market? And how can we then not make sure we don't get locked into one market, but we find adjoining markets with the same logic of what we've done for the product in terms of functionality? Can we be applied? Because the market's similar. The industry is similar to the other markets. So, so the way I would I'd utilize these numbers is as a, as a way of just understanding the dynamics, understanding what's been taken, what has not been taken, where's the untapped markets segments and going after those. So, so let me against each other for a moment, if that's okay. I want to pit the economist against the pragmatist well, um, here for for a quick moment. So it is a market that is it is a market that's growing. We think it's a market that's important. It is a market where you know there are vendors. You know, we mentioned Pega, we mentioned Appian, OutSystems, Mendix. These are well established vendors. You know, they're 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 doing well. We've got Microsoft flexing its muscles in this market. We've got ServiceNow. We've got Oracle making a lot of noise. I mean, I'm, it's it's a, it's huge, right? So, you know, s- some of these vendors are are in a rather powerful space to kind of adjust the market growth, and 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 then there's 116 vendors that Reimer and I tracked as, as sort of the long tail of vendors in this space in DPA and low code, and, and not everybody survives, right? So I'm wearing my Novell Groupwise T-shirt, so. So we've got an economist and we've got a product person. So Andy, there's an old joke about, you know, three, there's a chemist and a, an engineer and an economist are trapped on a, are trapped on a uh, desert island and, and, a, and a crate of canned foods washes up and the chemist says, we can, we can expose them to the elements and right before the elements make the food go bad, we can, we can pry it open. And the engineer says, I could drop a coconut from this high. It will, it will open the can without without destroying the food. And the economist says, why are you making this so difficult? Why don't we just assume a can opener? So, you know, Ryan, Andy pulls up this taught this idea of, well, we'll just go vertical. We're a platform company. We have, you know, so when I have limited, unlimited R and D don't have unlimited SME, how hard is that to do to change your business model in that way? Yeah, it's an interesting one, right? Um, because I, if if it's not been discussed in every single low-code vendor, especially below those tech titans you mentioned, Rob, the the Microsofts and ServiceNows and the likes, and 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 I know they discuss it as well. But if it hasn't been discussed in the the sort of executive room or boardroom of all the other players in this industry, it's a miss, right? Um, because to Andy's point, you you know. Set, there's there's so much untapped opportunity in the different verticals. And if you're focused on how you go and, and hunt that down, you can do really well versus what everyone struggles with, which is this broad platform story. Now, I, I kind of got two perspectives on this, right? One is uh, people have always told me selling platforms hard, right? Um, especially selling platform to IT and especially selling platform to IT in the face of Microsoft is hard. And my response to that tends to be get good at doing hard things, right? Because 
the upside opportunity and platform, like if we are out market sizing anything that's platform, it tends to dwarf very specific boutique software, right? For, for, for lots of good reasons. So, so to me, it's a, it's a two-pronged approach. One, you have to, you are a platform. That's what people expect from you. You have to be a good platform. You have to be scalable and extensible in the low code space. But equally, you have to think from a go-to-market perspective about how you go and unlock the potential in these different places. So that's a sort of the stepping one level up from it, Rob, in mm-hmm. the details of it. What gets interesting from a product perspective is to say, okay, go-to-market's fine, right? So I'm going to have sellers that can go talk. Let's, let's take banking example that you gave, Andy. You've got sellers who are going to go sell into banking. They've been in banking. They've got domain expertise there. They've got credibility with the buyer on the other side. Check. I go to my marketing team and I said, I have people here in marketing who are used to creating collateral for that type of buyer and ideal customer profile. Check. Fantastic. Now I start coming back into product, product management, UX engineering and ask, do I have that expertise? Um, and if I do, how can I leverage that from a product perspective? But, but even more important in this low code space is what does it actually mean for my platform to, to be vertical? Now, is that, of course, the thing everyone loves to do is say, oh, you should have a template gallery with templates. And then you find that's a thing, right? Art of the possible. Um, but actually understanding what it takes to take a platform and, and completely tailor it. Um, you know, the guest we should have back on is Burley because he went through this exercise at Coney, right? And, and it, it's, it's a proper exercise because you have to productize on top of your platform for the vertical, right? And, and that can't, and, and so that's not a template. Templates are interesting out of the possible, but it's something that can be deployable, that can offer a value out of the box that addresses specific pain points. And for that particular industry, um, it's, it has to be something that can benefit from levels of customization or configuration, but doesn't necessarily require that. And then that implementation on top of your platform, you have to treat it like a product longer term. So you, you have to bug fix it. You have to add capability to it because that industry is expecting you to innovate in their space on their behalf. And so this is why it's very easy to say we should go vertical. And in reality, coming back to product, it, it's much, much harder, right? And and then you have to think about, okay, are you just going to do that one vertical or is this a strategy that says we're going to pick off verticals over time as we figure out how that motion works, how we can scale that, and when we've pot- potentially tapped out a particular vertical. So I'll, I'll ask oh. you, hang on just, just a second. I have, I have a question for both of you then, um, if that's okay. What role does the investor play in this conversation, right? Because if I if I if I focus on a niche, I'm probably not really fulfilling that, you know, that initial estimate of what this company would be worth as a platform company before it got so crowded, right? So I'm going to focus on construction in Europe. You know, and we've got a company I think that does that extraordinarily well, but I don't think that it's Forma. We've mentioned them a number of times. They're a smaller company, but they're very they're super smart. And they're doing incredibly well in construction in Europe, but is that going to keep a private equity investor happy? Is that going to keep VC money happy? Is that going to keep you know you know the the, the executives at a large company happy, or does that fundamentally change the trajectory of of the company and 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 and, and who the company is likely to become? Let me just add one perspective to Ryan's, and then which also addresses yours, Rob. Yep. 
Because I talk about vertical, it's not just a matter of product functionality. It's also a matter of partners, of consultants. And, uh, you know, you can keep basically the same product, but add some specific functionality. But if you recognize that, look, if we get, let's say, B of A as a client, then the odds of we're getting City as a client just went up because City's going to, yeah, they're competitors, but they also look at each other and say, oh, gee, if B of A is using that, we ought to look at that. So, so vertical is partly a sales strategy, which VCs will tend to like because that means you're leveraging your ones. It's also a partner strategy because it might mean that we want to go after a partner, an, S, a, uh, an SI, who's strong in that vertical, who has that relationship with City because they work already, who will get you in the door in addition to the fact you've got B of A. So you can satisfy uh, the, the VCs, I think, or the investors, by explaining how a vertical strategy is only partly a product, how it's a go-to-market strategy and how that leverages and gets you sales channels, gets you partners that get you there. But there's also, you, as I was saying, you want to avoid the vertical trap. <clears throat> so every time you pick a vertical, you also want to be thinking about what's the adjoining verticals that we can take this in. If we have banking, then we get securities. Got securities, we can maybe get insurance. So you can use that again with, with your investors. Lay out the strategy. We want to avoid that being being pigeonholed in one. We want to get good at, it. but we've got this whole strategy that says we're going to leapfrog from this one to that one to that one over time. And that roadmap is what will keep your investors happy. Uh, in principle. <laughs> Obviously, execution matters, then they'll say, well, nice strategy, but not executing. But, but I think as a way you can avoid a vertical trap and use it as a way to differentiate yourself, <clears throat> uh, leverage your resources, leverage your partners, and make progress by doing so. So in the interest of time, because um, we, we, we do tend to run rather long, we'll try to be a little, a little briefer as we go forward, as we're learning. Andy, you're going to build a market sizing model for this, right? For us, right? It's going to go out on analysis.tech? Well, it depends upon how much interest there is. You know, <laughs> if, if we find that there's that vendors I, are saying, smash the really like button, I think, is what, what we're supposed to say. <laughs> well, it's partly, I mean, um, it, it, it's not a trivial exercise. You know, it takes it would take quite a bit of work to do it. And if it's being done just for our own edification, well, probably not. Or if we find that, yeah, there actually is demand for it, there's interest in it, then, yeah, we'll build a market around that. Andy, but I've got the, leverage, you know, the knowledge of you and Rob and John, especially around the vendors, to, to do that. So it's it's not a quick exercise. It's one that will take you know, several weeks, a couple of months to get done. Andy, let me ask a naive question, not knowing. I mean, the last one of the market sizings we did on low code and DPA was, was in fact, you and I, and, and well, John Reimer and I, and, and you were, you know, you were the economist that was helping us through that. So we've done it before. Would you accept input from the vendors if they're listening and say, listen, I'm willing to give you some insights into, you know, my company's dynamics? Is that something you do or do you, or does that sort of stray from objectivity? Uh, absolutely. I, I referenced earlier that as an analyst, that was the, those are the questions I would ask in a vendor briefing would be, you know, how many clients you got? How many clients do you have for a year ago? 
How many employees do you have focused on this? Yeah. If there are vendors who are willing to, you know, have that kind of uh, you know, briefing with me, uh, I absolutely would leverage that. I think, Rob, one of the other ones on that front is, and, and Andy, you just talked about this, right? The channel vis-a-vis -vis going vertical, right? Um, channel's a massive part of this. Low-code apps don't build themselves. And a dirty little secret, a lot of low-code apps are built by in-house IT. When in-house IT can't scale, a lot of the times they go to system integrator partners. Yes, there's a lot of business ops people, a lot of enthusiastic low-coders in the, in, in, in the line of business that get things done. But that side of it's massive, right? And so I think, Rob, one of the interesting points here would be to get an SI perspective. Um, I always like to bucket it the way we did at Microsoft, the mm -hmm. regular SI, the, the you know um, national system integrator, the, the global SIs, the big heavy hitters, to get their perspective. And Because typically we're looking, like at Nintex, we always looked at the ratio, right? What's their services to license ratio? Mm -hmm. um, and, and oftentimes it's quite a significant multiple. And I think that's one of the misses in this this industry in particular, is people often talk about kind of what the vendor capacity is and the spend there, as opposed to, okay, there's two to three X that spend in the services world. How many dollars are going around this? Um, and then and then playing that out a bit further, how many employees are actually doing this? And what's that sort of fully loaded headcount cost for the employees that are doing this? It'd be interesting to try to capture some of that as we go on this journey as well. I, I was going to say, in terms of, of the implementation staff, every vendor should have their own staff and they have partners because part of the role of your own staff is to do the training. You know, uh, and that's a scaling issue. You, know, you, you can only train your partners so quickly if you've got, and, and if you've got people of your own staff doing it, then they're not doing implementations themselves. So you have to pull people off who are doing your own development do the training for your partners means that you're hoping to get the partners up. So it's a juggling act as well of how the timing of bringing partners on, where you bring them on, and how you how you work that. Yeah. Cool. So we do we do have a couple that are scheduled um, to come on. Have agreed to come on. One is a one is a large global SI, um, and one is a um, is a a smaller boutique firm who's got really solid grounding in, in both DPA and now um, and now low code. So these are things we can explore going forward. Um, any last thoughts, Ryan, Andy, start with Andy, any, any kind of things we should leave here closing out? No, I think we covered anything. I just want to say I'm, I'm delighted to be working with you guys. I think it's going to be We're fun. delighted you're working with us. Ryan, final thoughts? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I'd just say, you know, obviously what's really fascinating about this type of exercise is there's so much in it for so many people, right? Um, you know, this landscape is, is made up of a bunch of people who are having to buy and make decisions around what they buy in this larger category and the subcategories within it. And, and so for them to understand how big this market is and how much their, you know, peers and or competitors are spending is an interesting dimension to this. I think for the partners, system integrators, how much can they bank on this category? in terms of you know filling their pipeline for opportunity for the people. The vendor side of it, how big is this? Where is it going? What does it all mean? We're seeing a lot of consolidation, obviously, Rob, but a lot of M&A in this space uh, in recent times. At the same time, absolute bucket load of venture money's come into the space over the last few years and, and already seeing even more so because surprisingly no one, everyone's decided generative AI is going to 
dynamically change everything and you know uh and the bots will take care of it all right so there's there's more money every startup's now saying hey we're going to do low code but you just chat to the computer and you get yourself an application right so uh, i think it's gonna be interesting to see uh, how all this plays and how people should think about where they they place their bets for sure agreed agreed thank you ryan thank you andy just sort of in closing i i kind of kicked us off by saying we've got we've got three I think three fantastic vendors coming on um, that that really do, I think, show a lot of breath in the space. Again, it's going to be Appian, Mendix, and um, and Kamunda. Um, and I know I've talked to a lot of you vendors out there, and I've agreed to have a lot of you. We've agreed to have a lot of you on the show. And if you weren't one of those first three, um, please don't yell at Ryan. Please yell at me um, because it was, in fact... I did make the call on that, but but we we want to have you know a lot of vendors on over time because we think each one has a, a particular perspective and a t- particular value in the market. So with that, I want to close out episode six of Lowdown Low Code, and thanks again to Ryan and Andy and everybody who's taken the time to listen. Have a great day. Good, thank you. Thank you.